Welcome to Building a Better World, a podcast that investigates the intersection of the metaverse and how we can apply these technologies to improve people's real lives and enhance humanity. The metaverse is more than a web of networks. It is an unfathomable life-shaping tool. And we, our friends, are here to dive headfirst into the way these technologies can improve our life and the world around us. I'm your host, Rish Lotlakar. Get ready to discover how we can build a better world in three, two, one. So today we have Herman Narula, who's the CEO at Improbable and also co-founder there, as well as co-founder at the M Squared Network, along with the author of Virtual Society, The Metaverse and the New Frontiers of Human Experience. So awesome to have you here. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I'd love to, um, you know, start off by getting a bit of your story, um, you know, your background, how you got into, um, you know, your start and in, in building the metaverse and kind of, you know, some of the early days and origins of all this, if you don't mind. Sure. I mean, look, I'll, I'll tell, a bit, tell you a bit about my origins and then equally important, I think, uh, some of my co-founders too and how we came together. Um, look, for me, from the time, earliest time I can remember, like, six, seven years old, when I first started messing around with computers and, and writing a little bit of code, I was always obsessed with other worlds, virtual, like other realities. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking here in the more general sense, you know, about Narnia or, you know, the Harry Potter universe or, or whatever it might be as a kid that you think about and imagine and, and, and believe in. And I think, I guess I was just one of those kids that never grew out of that, right? You know, I, I kind of always felt this sense, especially as I played video games more and I love Dungeons and Dragons and, and, and role-playing games. Like, why can't we live there? Like, why can't we go there? Why can't that sort of tantalizing other reality be something tangible that we can actually engage with and interact with? And I kind of grew up, I think, among a generation of gamers for whom video games weren't really play. Like, you know, when when we were playing competitive Halo or, or you know, Neverwinter Nights or Second Life, like, like Rob, my co-founder, who he actually paid his way through college in Second Life. You know, these, wow. these were very serious matters to us, right? They were an important part of our lives. And it's funny now because there, I have cousins who like come home from school very young and they go straight onto Minecraft or Roblox. And, and for them, that's when they socialize with their friends, you know, afterwards. So there was always this vague, inarticulate sense that these other worlds are not disconnected and far away, that, that maybe there's a way to make them real. Maybe there's a way to create real value in everyday lives and, and real opportunities to have real adventures in other worlds. So that was the kind of child version of it. And then as I grew up and, you know, I, I got into uh, building games and when I was about 11, and then when I met Rob actually at Cambridge, when we all became computer scientists, the, the question kind of turned into a different one, which is why is it so hard for online worlds to be as rich and as interesting as we wanted them to be. And, you know, we got our start focused kind of on quite narrow MMO type games. And now you, most people probably think of us as a metaverse company, you know, with, with experiences with thousands of people kind of hanging out, socializing in a way that goes beyond games. But the technical challenges behind that were really intriguing to us because they seem simple, but they're insanely hard. And in many ways, I think we were very naive and silly and thought we could solve these problems very quickly. It took us like eight, nine years and, you know, loads much of smarter people and, and many, many exploded uh, rockets on the launch pad before we could genuinely do some of the things that, that we're now able to do on a weekly basis. Um, and, and that has only, as, as that sort of time went on, and I learned more about the sort of psychology and economics of virtual worlds. Why do people play? 
why do people like sport? Why do people engage in these things? I've come to realize that actually a really important part um, of building a better, fairer world is taking these experiences and making them as available to as many people as possible. Because interactive experiences that provide you with psychological fulfillment, these are not games. These are you know, fundamental nourishment of the soul. And you know, the friends you make online are not online friends, they're just friends. You know, the achievements that you that you do when you are creative inside a game, that's just creativity. It's not virtual creativity. And so that that belief that this other reality is is just as real, just as important, just as tangible as the real, not a replacement for it, to be clear, but an extension of it. That's driven everything I've ever done. And, and it even, you know, now as, as, as we become heavily engaged in how generative AI can make that story real as well, as we branch out in terms of technology and, and, and incorporate those things, it's all driven by that same impulse. Like these other worlds, they're tangible, they're real, they matter, they affect the real world. And, and that's what I, that's really what's, what's motivated me through my whole career. Yeah, that's that's an awesome um, understanding of how everything, you know, virtual and physical kind of come together and are influenced by each other and ultimately are part of life, right? Um, I mean, the oldest old, oldest monuments ever made by man, you know, Gebekli Tepe in Turkey, you know, I think it's like more than 10,000 years old. It predates agriculture. So even before we were able to build farms and have the free time to like think about these things, we felt it important enough to make monuments to these other realities. You know, like you look at the carvings on on, on the pillars in Gabakli Tepe and there's like animal carvings and strange other worlds defined and mentioned and thought about. So this, this capacity to create the other reality, it's not some frivolous thing. It, it must be really central to who we are as people, right? I mean, that that is very interesting to me. And um, football, soccer, I mean, doing a lot in, in soccer right now. You know, I never used to be a football fan when I was growing up until I started going to the stadiums. And then something just kind of like made me a fan. And I, to this day, I'm like, what was it? Like, how did I suddenly care so much about Arsenal Football Club? And it kind of speaks to this intrinsic human quality, this intrinsic need to interface with this other world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very powerful. And and um, could you go into how you started Improbable? Like, how did that sure. kind of come together, go into... So me, me, on, yeah. me, Rob, Peter, um, and others, we, we kind of, um, Jim Dang and Dima Kislov, we sort of met uh, straight after university and in a barn in, in my parents' house. And we basically just began coding um, what would become the earliest, earliest, earliest prototypes of technology designed to overcome the limitations in scale and density and capacity in building worlds. And we were really, really bad at it. Uh, you know, we, we made lots of mistakes. And mm -hmm. I think what was great about the group of people that we formed is they were all very smart people, but I think we all understood the limitations of our own ability as well. We understood that there were, there were problems that would require smarter people than us. And we tried to build a culture that drew those people in and drew them in and drew them in. And over time, some incredible people have, have helped us to sort of better understand how to do this impossible seeming thing. And we went from in that barn handling a few thousand messages a second, which is kind of what games like Fortnite do today, to handling 20 billion messages a second now. And I'd say in the barn, I probably understood how the technology worked reasonably well. Now I could, I could like draw you some diagrams, but, but you know, th there's a level of complexity that what we've built has reached that I don't think any one single person could, could architect everything again from scratch. It's become a more, you know, like it's become like an almost an operating system in, in scale. Wow. Yeah. That's an amazing origin. And, uh, you know, starting in a, in a barn is a, is a great, um, kind of way of, of doing that very physical 
world setting um you know it's a it's a great image of of how that how that came to be um you know can you tell me more about um you know as you've kind of continued that journey um you've also um have started m squared network and and you know how that kind of plays into it and i'd love to you know um also go into your your book as well the virtual society so, before we jump into other topics so so i think you know Solving it turned out that trying to solve the technological problems in building complex virtual worlds is not enough to create yeah. a really valuable business. If you want to really give get people to have access to that, you face some non-obvious economic limitations in the way this stuff works. Licensing or selling technology isn't a great business um, for a lot of reasons, and it isn't in the games industry either. There are very few companies that have done that successfully, and the ones that have are usually making money in some other way. I believe Unity is, is primarily driven by ad revenue. Epic Games, everybody knows, is it's more about Fortnite store now than, than the engine in terms of in terms of upside. And there's a good reason for that. You know, game developers are in a hyper-competitive space where the cost of acquiring a new user for a free-to-play game is over $10. So if it costs $10 just to make someone play a game for free, you can imagine how challenged the economics of building a successful game are. It's one of the reasons I'm a little skeptical when a lot of um, Web3 projects are like, I don't know, we're just going to build a game and it's going to be a success. Well, actually, that's really hard to do, even if that's all you've ever done in your in your kind of whole career. And I think the penny kind of dropping the evolution that was really interesting was as we went down that journey, realizing that the metaverse or the notion of a valuable shared virtual world is only as valuable as the willingness for participants to create collaborative shared and codependent content. And as our technology got more and more mature, so as we could handle lots of people and do them very effortlessly, we began to see these applications well beyond gaming, you know, initially in areas like defense, um, which was great. But then now um, in, in kind of what M squared became, we realized that we could do things in a really different way. Rather than building a platform that we control, like a Fortnite or a Roblox, which can be great, but economically makes it very hard for large companies, brands, and partners to work with you unless you pay them or unless you take all the risk. Those are kind of traffic-based networks is how I would refer to them. M squared is the idea of, with our experience and understanding and dealing with company after company, inverting that paradigm into actually, what if you could build a network where people could share users, share value, own their own asset or business, build their own investable company on top of your business without fear of the platform risk. And that's really where a lot of the Web3 concepts have kind of emerged into our thinking as well. And M squared is this idea of building a kind of operating system for culture, a network where partners like Major League Baseball, partners like our partners in football or in music or in other areas, they can all build their own experiences, their own worlds, their own companies, but those two can actually meaningfully result in users and assets moving from place to place. Now that's easy to say, it's technologically ferociously difficult and, and, and kind of our experiences is why we've been able to do that. Um, but that, that's really where M squared came from. It's this idea of, great, you've solved this problem, but how do you take it to market? How do you actually encourage the development of a complex and interesting virtual uh, ecosystem on top of it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'd love to uh, to dig into that more. But prior to doing that, I'd love to hear also about the third the third major thing that I introduced you with is, um, you know, your your amazing book, uh, Virtual Society. I would love to hear kind of the origins well, of that. And I mean, honestly, that was a book written out of frustration. I think the metaverse, like AI, is something which people we forget now like 2010 11 i want to say a lot of people dismissed ai startups and ai companies like I, even even companies like deepmind in, in the uk had trouble initially uh, convincing people that what they were doing was worth doing this is before a lot of the breakthroughs that people made um you know the metaverse and ai are similar in that they're well they're quite connected but also no one really sat down 
to define on a fundamental basis, what is this thing? What makes it different from just a video game, right? If you're a skeptical person, why should it exist? Why does it actually create intrinsic value? And a lot of the companies, big companies that moved into the metaverse space, or you know, prior to that, whatever it was cloud gaming, they were they were doing what they felt would create an opportunity for them, as opposed to thinking about what the fundamental problem they were solving for the user really was. You see this a lot with VR. You know, people associate the metaverse with VR. That isn't really logical. VR is just a consumption method, one of many that you could use to interface with other realities. And as somebody as you, you know, who grew up caring only about that, there are many ways to immerse yourself in another world. So what's more interesting is how do you define the, the, the basic psychological and economic motivations for people to partake in these experiences? What happens when they become richer? What happens to our economy when they become richer? What, what happens to the wider ability for social uh, communities and organizations to form and operate? So the book is a, a way of kind of, you know, trying to like get to something fundamental. It doesn't necessarily focus too much on technology. It focuses a lot more on why. And it, it's turned into a blueprint for me on how to build um, valuable, useful businesses in this space. Um, and that's kind of a lot of what M Squared is based on as well. Yeah, amazing. And and you know, you you touched on it, but the ability for those businesses to build on top, use those, you know, resources and and really kind of have avoid that kind of platform risk. And that is so fundamental, honestly. Like yeah. if you wanted to build the metaverse as a company, you know, a lot of the journalism was around who will win, who will build the metaverse. Uh -huh. The way I read that is like, who will build all of society? Like, you know, no, no one, right? No one's going to spend an infinite amount of money to, to acquire an infinite amount of cultural property and access. You know, the metaverse is fundamentally different from building um, search or e-commerce or social networks, all of which are huge pillars of our society because it requires, it necessitates a level of collaboration and a level of co-investment that just doesn't work within the economic structure of a closed platform thing. 80% of the upside. It disincentivizes anybody from building a real business on top. Even now, you look at something like Roblox, um, which is an incredible uh, business in many ways, but I think the stat is like, out of how many million creators, only 5,000 or a few thousand creators have ever earned more than like one grand in upside. So, you know, there's these these are highly skewed platforms, right? Where, where the relationship with the platform operator and the creator really doesn't encourage you to develop a business. Now you can certainly have a personal career and royalties as a YouTuber or as a content creator on someone else's platform, but you're never gonna IPO a company, right? That's based on a, a Roblox or, or, or another closed platform. So this realization that in order to win, we're gonna have to take a much tinier part of the pie and encourage other groups to even compete with us. The crazy thing about M Squared is it allows people to mm -hmm. cut Improbable out of the value chain that Improbable has created, which is a really, really bizarre thing to allow. But mm -hmm. it makes a lot of sense when you look at the economics. It's the only way you can justify um, mm -hmm. investing in a network if you truly have a feeling of platform independence. In fact, the board of M Squared, which includes uh, people like the founder of Second Life, um, mm -hmm. who, who we got to know over the years, is intended to be independent from Improbable and its decision-making as well. Cool. Yeah. Phil, Phil Rosedale. Yeah. He's, okay. he's fantastic. Yeah. He's one, of the, awesome. one of the people I wish I, one of the people I wish was listened to far more by people entering the metaverse space, you know, second life did so many things that in the like last crypto bull metaverse run, uh, those lessons were so applicable and yet so many companies chose not to, not to really apply them. And I think that leads to, that leads to very disastrous outcomes.
Yeah, Phil's awesome. I, I totally agree. And he's he has a lot of um, amazing insights from his experiences and, and uh, yeah, excited to see what he continues to build. Um, I, I wanted to g d dig in um, into some of your projects. Um, you know, I know that you've uh, recently involved and in, been involved with the Major League Baseball and a new virtual ballpark. I uh, would love to hear more about, you know, how that came to be and kind of your thoughts around, um, you know, sports and, uh, sure. you know, the real world and real world kind of live events versus virtual and kind of bringing those things together. So sports is like one of the most mysterious, bizarre, wonderful aspects of human culture that we kind of take it for granted in many ways. But when you really look at it, it is weird. It's got billions of people. Um, that are literally willing, I mean, I'm Indian, so cricket, you know, kind of comes to mind, willing to kill and die over their belief in the importance of whether it's your football club, whether it's your national team, whether it's your appreciation, you become genuinely distraught when your team loses and genuinely passionately happy when they win. And it's more than an activity that is about entertainment. It's a profound form of communion for a lot of people. It, it transcends language. It's one of those things where you could you could literally, uh, people have in wars played, you know, World War I soccer is a great example, right? And the Christmas miracle, people have literally, you know, used sport in, since ancient times to diffuse actual conflicts in different ways. The thing about it though, is it's a bizarrely broken economic system. Uh, you know, if you're a Southeast Asian Man United fan or a baseball fan, you can't come to the game. You can't meet the players. You can't feel the magic of being in a crowd of fellow supporters chanting or shouting or being together. And making that possible is incredibly technically hard because it involves doing a lot of things that have nothing to do with making video games. For example, bringing over 20 to 30,000 people in one spot at one time who can all see each other, who can all talk, who can all interact. So what's motivated, I think, sports organizations to come to Improbable is they want to create much more fan engagement, especially for their international fans. And they want to widen what sport is. You know, players who... who um, with Victory League, which is our soccer project, that's driven by players. Players are actually partners and equity holders in that. They want to talk to their fans more. They want to hang out with their fans more. They want to show, uh, you know, to quote Arsenal, ex-Arsenal Placanu, you don't know me. You know, you've never heard my voice. You, you know me, but you don't know me. And, you know, he wants to hang out with people. At the league level, I think there's a genuine desire to create value for fans. And there's also an economic imperative. You know, how do you reach young people? How do you grow from, you know, clubs like FC, um, like Real Madrid, they have 600 million active fans and they make less than one euro a year from those fans. Mm -hmm. Candy Crush monetizes people better, Candy Crush, than Real mm -hmm. Madrid. And imagine how passionate people are about Real Madrid versus yeah. Candy Crush, which I'm sure people are passionate about, but I have never heard of anyone killing anyone over Candy Crush, although I, you know, saying that, I'm sure a listener will probably know of an incident. But the point, the point overall is, you know, sport has a, an, ex, an existential growth and accessibility and and value uh, proposition problem that this can unlock. And a lot of actors in sport from clubs to um, owners, to players, to fans, to fan networks that we've been working with often create a lot of value, but don't get to see that value. They don't, they don't have a way of kind of creating it. And so the combination of virtual experiences and digital assets can, can just utterly revitalize and, and enrich the growth uh, within sport. And of course, everything I just said, you could apply to music as well. Yeah, sports and entertainment have these uh, very similar culture. Kind of overlapping. Yeah, yeah. Culture in general. And it's also pretty unfair. Like music's a great example where things are pretty unfair. You can get a billion streams on Spotify, a billion streams mm -hmm. and earn 
not very much money, you know, like significantly less than a million dollars is what I've been told by, by artists. Um, you know, most artists make that money through touring. They have fans that are dis, you know, disparate uh, from, from where they are. They have to go through a slog of traveling all around the world. Unless you're like Taylor Swift, it isn't as much money as you might think. So how can those artists actually in an accessible way hang out with their fans? How can their fans hang out with each other, especially in the countries and parts of the world where they may not go or may not be able to go? And I think if, if, if you know, if we can create an environment where that can happen, then that's magical. You know, that is that is letting people enter into another world, right? In a, in a way that they that they may have never been able to otherwise. Yeah, so powerful. And, and I love the the way you described, um, you know, the specific stories of, of the players, you know, recognizing that their, you know, um, their fans uh, across the world haven't really interacted with them in a way that they would appreciate and probably would get even more satisfaction. They could talk to them and, and hear them and hear the other fans around them. And the voice thing, I think, is really yeah. key. I think Phil Rosedale, like, you know, helped me to really see as well is that strangely, VR is important, but actually hearing all those people in many cultural contexts in many emotional contexts is even more important if everyone can be heard then you can hear that chant in the corner of the stadium you can hear the people singing happy birthday you know which happened in one of our events to a random group of people you can hear the person trying to talk to you, you your heart starts beating faster you, you go into this like this mental state where you really feel present that's the word i would use present uh, the world may not be highly immersive versus VR. You may not uh, consider it to look realistic, although of course we can do that as well with with, with the tech that we've we've built. We we support VR as well, but the presence, the notion of the world thinking you are real, the fact that you can interact is key. I mean, I'll, I'll give you one incident. We had a test event and we were just screwing around with um, Arsenal player Alexander Zinchenko, and he was uh, giving a little talk in our company town hall space virtually as himself. And I was interviewing him, which was weird. Uh, and there was a few hundred people there, like off Twitter by clicking a link and jumping in. And at one point we were just testing out this, this question and answer thing. So he was like, all right, what kind of food do you think most improves football performance? It was a really silly question. And there was like three fast food restaurants, like it was McDonald's and Nando's or whatever. And everyone ran in crowds to the circle that they believed in. And there was a like an error. He accidentally pressed the button and, and launched everybody to their death after revealing the answer. And then these like hundred people started arguing and shouting, "Go back to Nando's! You said Nando's first. Go back to Nando's!" It was like a really hilarious moment. And he hears this and then he starts laughing because he can hear everybody talking. So you know this this serendipitous magical mishmash of humanity that we love about the real world. That is something I think the metaverse needs to bring to us. If all the metaverse is, is just video games with a different name and, and, and Web3 asset sales, then not only is it not useful, which is a really serious problem, it's also going to be utterly crushed by actual video games. Like I, I you know, normal video games work great and they're not going anywhere. So yeah. I think we have to think of the metaverse as, as making the world better in a specific and, you know, and specific and, and, and useful way. That is very important. Yeah, no, totally agree on that. Real world utility and and providing some differentiation between what's already been happened on the video game side. Um, would you um would love to hear um kind of your thoughts on you know some of the more technical aspects of of, of some of those challenges? So you know we we talk about how businesses can can be built. Um, you know, without that platform risk, how can they, you know, grow and maybe potentially even be built to go to IPO? Um, can you talk more about some of the, sure, some of the, sure. you know, the, the aspects of how that happens? How would a partner build on M squared network, things like that? 
So um, this has been an enormous um, multi-year technical undertaking in which we've been through successive generations of technology that we've also launched, battle tested, seen problems with, improved and moved forward with. Mm -hmm. um, but where we've reached now is, is potentially quite a different set of decisions to what other people might make. So I'll, I'll start with, you know, um, something simple and then move to the more complex parts. Um, mm -hmm. How do you describe a digital object in a way that is useful, separated from any given context and that can be composed and built on by other people? So we created something called Metaverse Markup Language. Now, if you create a game object, let's say a hat or a jukebox, and you write it inside a game engine for a given game, that is not an object that can easily interact with content made by other people. It's also not an object most people can author because game engines are hard to use in specific. And crucially, it's not necessarily an object that, you know, can, can live in the web or can live in other contexts or can be easily connected to an NFT, for example. So... Metaverse markup language we created and then MIT open source and are working on regularly. And it allows you to use JavaScript and HTML and some tags and some stuff that even ChatGPT can write for you, right? Because it knows JavaScript really well. And it lets you create quite complex objects. Those objects can be components in a game. And crucially, you can just dynamically import them into any project on M squared or into any other project that chooses to support that standard, even without having any economic or commercial relationship with us. It also means that if you are a content creator for a metaverse on the network, mm -hmm. that metaverse can't screw you. It can't keep you locked into it. Uh, you could choose to take your content somewhere else. And that's such an important point in enabling the creator economy to really flourish. And it's counterintuitive because platforms normally will want to do the opposite of that, right? Here's my proprietary standard, which you absolutely have to use and you're, you're never going to walk away. And um, we also solved challenges in the visualization of these objects. Like, great, you have an NFT, fantastic. What does it point to? Usually a JPEG. That JPEG doesn't let you do much. It's not dynamic. It doesn't have interesting properties. It, it also often isn't in a visual form where it could appear in multiple contexts. So we've open sourced a standard to do that as well. Now, all of that's great, but then what can I do with these things? How do I bring thousands of people together? How do I make that work? So we developed a technology called Morpheus. And what this is, is it totally replaces the way that games normally do networking in order to facilitate a much more complex approach that allows for billions of uh, updates or changes in the world, what I call operations per second. This is the term we use both in the book and as a company uh, that Rob, my co-founder, actually invented. It's basically a measure of the complexity of a world. So the problem with this is when I wave my hand, if 10,000 people can see me wave my hand, then that wave is 10,000 messages. Now, if all 10,000 people all wave their hand, that's 10,000 times 10,000 messages, right? Now, if we add one more person, we're not adding one more message. We're adding 10,000 more messages, right? So things become more and more, well, 10,000, well, it becomes more and more complicated. Um, and, and the idea here is really the way you deal with that is all AI. So there is no way to, to send a billion messages to somebody um, of, 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 you know, in a complex form with limited bandwidth, one of the things we focus on. So you have to dynamically determine who needs what message at a low latency basis when those people, you know, we've done events with over 8,000 people are potentially in 100 different countries and they all need to be able to do all the things that we just talked about. So that networking technology, um, instead of licensing it or selling it, we've just made it a free part of M squared. Anybody that joins the network and agrees to the rules of sharing value with each other gets access to that tech and ongoing improvements to that tech, which is fantastic. And then thirdly, um, all of this isn't enough. You got to, the rendering has to change. Just, this is one of the, one of the things that is, um, kind of interesting about the idea of a digital asset economy is today no game engine even supports everyone thousands of people looking different and being rendered on screen so if you buy that you know versace uh virtual world item no one will be able to see it unless you have 
rendering algorithms that allow that to work. So we've developed a bunch of stuff people have seen uh, where you can dynamically load in complex geometry and textures and have everyone in the world see them, which is awesome. And this works also on um, devices that don't have to be gaming PCs via streaming. And we now have another thing in the works, uh, which I don't think I've actually talked about publicly before. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of like codenamed, uh, well, I won't, I won't say the name of it just yet, but it, it's a way of bringing fully generative um, objects that are made entirely by AI into these same algorithms. So it's another level of complexity on top. So all of these pieces, and then there's the voice technology, there's the way in which we run tests at scale. Uh, in order to make any of this work, you have to run literally thousands of, of automated uh, tests involving bots that cover up a lot of cloud capacity, um, security issues. It, it's basically almost we've made a machine that does nothing but enable this type of experience. Wow. So essentially by joining joining the network, you have access to all of these tools and the ability to generate. And then, um, you know, that's developers or creators uh, can either or. Um, and and how how has that, um, you know, continued to grow or what's the what's the process okay. to join? You know, love to love to look into this. This is this is amazing. So there are two ways to work uh, on mm -hmm. the network right now. We're still at an early phase. We launched um, the Codex, which tells you exactly what we're planning to do and, and what order we're doing them in, in quite a lot of technical detail um, in mm -hmm. places. Um, so we've already, of course, got the first events everyone has seen uh, that we're launching and we're doing more and more of. We've got a kind of early access program where people can work with us, work with Improbable to start uh, building and creating businesses and experiences right now. Uh, mm -hmm. MLB is an example of, of that, which is a pretty great vote of confidence to start with and also the football stuff, but also um, some of the events you see us putting on weekly with partners and friends are, are indications of other businesses in the works as well. Um, mm -hmm. That'll then turn into a completely self-service model. So anybody will be able to do this without even interacting with us. But right now, while we're perfecting the tools in tech, uh, we want to make sure that we, we can support people. So we're, we're trying to limit it to folks that are going to want to play by the rules of the network and create a good community. At the same time, we've made a totally free uh, metaverse called Construct, which you can go to by just going to construct.msquared.io. should run on your phone or anywhere. Um, a thousand people can hang out there. And occasionally we just do like random meetups. That is just a, it's a wild backrooms kind of place where anything can be uploaded. And it's really a way of testing MML and the technology and the tools. And we have a, a small but growing Discord community of passionate creators. One of the things we've avoided doing is financializing this in any way, shape or form. It would be so tempting with this situation to start, you know, financializing it in the way that uh, Web3 projects typically do. But I really don't believe in, in, in pre-financialization of such things until they've delivered real value to real people. Because only at that point, you know that you're creating something with long-term value. So a path of growth has been quite different to other projects, which have generally said, you know, buy my token one day in the future, I might make something like that just isn't, that isn't our way. Right, right. No, so that's great. So it's it's pretty easy to to join and and start kind of. Um, yeah, you can hop you on know, the Discord and, and yeah, you can hop on the Discord and upload something to MMLs uh, using MML to M squared's construct space in a couple of days or like in an hour if you if you know what you're doing with JavaScript, but a couple of days if you want to learn something. Awesome, awesome. That's exciting, and thanks for thanks for what you're doing there to to build the community and to give people the tools for interoperability. Um, you know, how do you see the convergence of uh, immersive tech? It, you know, Apple's coming out with their Apple Vision Pro. You know, we've seen uh, Oculus and its developments over the years. Um, where do you think that's going in terms of um, the, the hardware as well as the software? I think it's going to be part of the story. Like when we, um, people have made VR games using our older tech, not even with Morpheus, um, in which they've 
try to increase the number of people and interact. The way the tech is organized, it's all about dynamically understanding the authority of objects and what information needs to go where. And I've probably butchered that and Rob will be cringing if he hears me say this because it's become a lot more complicated than that now, the, the way we do it. But the, the long and the short of it is I believe in a metaverse where some users are on a phone having a passive experience. Mm -hmm. Some people are watching a feed on Twitch or YouTube like we've like we've been doing. And some people may very well be highly immersed with headsets, including, for example, the performers, the talent, the celebrities, or even just certain users that want a more immersive experience. So I think it's all adding more, more opportunities to the ocean. I will say one thing, though, which is mm -hmm. I'm all for immersive experiences. I'm all for, I would love to get that Apple Pro headset. And, you know, maybe maybe some of us listening on this call are fortunate enough to be able to afford, uh, you know, a $2,000, $3,000 headset. But the people I really want to reach are those Indian cricket fans, uh, you know, sitting in Delhi or Calcutta with a 4G phone from Geo that they got and they just have to press a link and it's free and then they can hang out with people who they've never been able to hang out before or they could feel what it's like to be at Lords or they could meet their heroes. I think if the metaverse is not accessible to everyone on some level and doesn't allow a form of experience that people can reach who today don't have access to that culture, then I think we're really solving a, the problem, a problem for the wrong people. So on the one hand, as a techie, I'm super excited about that. But with my kind of broader mission and economic hat on, I think this has really got to start by reaching the, the people who haven't been reached before, right? Those are the people who who need this stuff. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, inclusivity is is a, a big part of, I think, really building a metaverse that makes a difference and enables everyone and to have access. And it's good business too. I mean, there's like a billion people yeah. that like cricket. So, you know, getting getting access to that billion people is surely not a bad idea. If we restrict ourselves yeah. just to people with headsets, then what are we really building? Who's it really going to be for? Yeah. Uh, I'd love to hear your take as well on um, some of the, you know, more enterprise use cases here. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, businesses um, like uh, football and, and uh, you know, baseball and other sports and entertainment. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of those things um, could be thought of as, as ways to bring in customers and market, you know, in different, uh, in different ways to their fans. Um, how are businesses and you work in the defense industry as well? Um, what are, what are ways that you think businesses um, can utilize um, whether M squared network or in general um, these technologies to uh, enhance, you know, enterprise use cases or ways that, in yeah, training, uh, et cetera. I'll, I'll just give you an example of our own yeah. view of M squared in, in the sense we moved from, we didn't, we didn't do this because we like wanted to, or it was some mandate. It just mm -hmm. randomly turned out that when you have hundreds of people around the world, uh, you know, distributedly, it turns out it's more fun to hang out with them in a metaverse space where you can hear them talk to you than just give them a zoom lecture, you know? So like the ability to have that back and forth with people in our own company turned into a really valuable tool. We started holding our town halls there, our village halls. People obviously display their work, their screens where they can throw stuff up. Uh, people are able to like hang out with each other who maybe have never met in the real world uh, in a different context. So I see the, as, as companies become more remote and as conferences, enterprises, gatherings of people, I mean, look at something like a Dreamforce, you know, Salesforce's, you know, yearly, it's like, that is a gigantic gathering of people, um, you know, who have to travel there with all of the associated CO2 costs, uh, you know, from uh, and beyond. And probably also couldn't, maybe there are a lot of people out there who'd love to be at, at these events from a corporate and enterprise level who maybe aren't in the right part of the world or can't interact in the right way. Um, I think there's an enormous opportunity to do this. In fact, we are pursuing uh, some opportunities like this uh, just because of the interest of people that have, that have come to us. And, you know, a weird thing about Improbable right now is we, we're not actually doing any business development. Um, what happens is we do an event 
And somebody at the event gets excited and tends to work for a company and then contacts us. And then that's where our next opportunities come from. So that, that was probably one of the first indications, you know, 10 years in. It's been a long, difficult road to create something uh, that we are really proud of. That was one of the first indications that um, this is going to go in all kinds of directions that we can't control. I mean, we, we get some very interesting um, inbound from people who are like, well, I work at company X and, and what you're doing and what I saw could be really applicable to my industry. So, you know, I, I do see there being a bunch of a bunch of ways in which um, this form of, of social interaction can be exciting. Another key point is we're not going to build all of that ourselves. There's no way we can, right? We just don't have the scale to. So M Squared really encourages people to build their own technologies, not just content-based businesses. So if you have a better solution than our networking tech, if you have a better solution than the examples I'm giving, that can work on M Squared too. You know, M Squared keeps the the integrity of the economic system that that supports all these worlds alive it allows anybody to sort of build and grow uh, these things on top wow yeah so that that really kind of opens it up to a variety of different use cases because if there's something not being solved currently then then um you know the the partners can can build on top of it as well and and add to the tools yeah. Okay. Indeed, we've actually had startups uh, that have showed up and we've we've started to take almost a kind of venture builder mindset where we're trying yeah. to partner with, because some of these ideas are really interesting. So we as Improbable are like, well, actually, can we help you build that idea up and maybe we can support you and hell, maybe we can even point you in the direction of fundraising, right? So there's, there's something sort of yeah. cooking in the way the network is coming together. Um, but for me, I think what, what matters most is the experiences that reach the most people. That's why the ballpark for MLB was so exciting because that really reached yeah. thousands and thousands of people. I mean, millions of people, if you look at the, um, you know, the kind of broader awareness of it. Yeah. Um, on that topic as well, um, wh what do you think about um, as it relates to, to privacy and security, um, you know, as we get different uh, stakeholders involved, what's your thought on how that evolves over time in terms of, you know, the different um, concerns that people might have about the metaverse. Um, so, so I don't, I don't think it's, it's possible or even frankly legal, at least in Europe with the European markets bill to create a situation. I mean, this is one of the main problems I have with um, traffic-based closed networks, your typical video game platforms, which are very successful in scale. They compete with their own customers, even when they try not to, you know, like if you look at the top games on say Steam, Many of them are made by Valve, right? Like there's a there's a very interesting, you know, look at some of the top selling things on Amazon and they tend to be made, you know, by Amazon. There's a, there is a very, there's a big uh, incentive hazard in the way networks are organized. If the platform and the for-profit, well, let me put that a different way. If the platform and the businesses owned by the platform company that compete on that platform collude to create a, a value proposition that is superior for them than their customers, that's a serious issue. Now, that's actually been made illegal in Europe with the European Markets Bill, as I understand it, as I read it. I may have misunderstood it, but it's a pretty a pretty potent piece of legislation. Um, and the way we've designed M squared is really to separate those two things completely. So no one should be favored. No no metaverse, no project um, should be beyond the ability to be competed with. And any capability that we're describing needs to be available to anybody fairly participating in the network. That is really crucial in, in building integrity in the economic system. It's almost like a free trade agreement. You know, Free trade has pros and cons, but in the end, uh, countries realized after starting with mercantilism, where they kind of didn't want free trade, that it was actually better for everybody if, if they created free trade. It creates more economic activity for everyone. So if there's one big difference in how we function, it is specifically to avoid this. And then that takes you to privacy and security as well, because you're really looking at a collection, almost a European Union of metaverses with different privacy and security 
tolerances. Some of them might be very open to, to kind of anyone just showing up. In other cases, you might want to qualify access to people um, because what you're doing um, is sensitive or requires, um, you know, maybe you want to create a very inclusive environment for a very difficult type of public discourse. Politician wants to talk to thousands of voters, for example, and you want to make sure those voters are really from the country that they say they're from. This type of stuff is, is possible because the network allows so much control. Uh, from metaverse operators, you know, it, it lets someone like MLB make these decisions themselves. What is it that they want uh, and believe in? It's in many ways their business that happens to run on our network and that we're proud to support as opposed to being our business. That is key to understanding us. Yeah, that's great. It's uh, so important for them to have that autonomy and control and, and decision-making. Um, you know, as it, as as generative AI and and um, you know the the advancement of of that continues, um, as we think about user generated content and and ways that creators are now accessing um, these tools, and how we're you know again um, enabling creators um, at M squared Network in your case, um, how do you think that's how do you think that's going to play into all so of this? We've been secretly like deeply immersed in everything from um I, I mean one of the few things i do that still involves coding is um playing with open source llms um open source projects things like uh, ada for example which i'm really keen on recently that lets you um build and modify code bases it's a really cool project or you know various self-prompting uh, llm chains lang chain lang flow um, all of the different generative model systems that are out there. And why we're really interested in this is not because Improbable is in the business of making foundational models, but because when you really step back and look at it, the foundational models are probably not what the value is. The value is really in taking what those foundational models can do and putting that into useful contexts, such as virtual worlds. Um, so we've actually already done events where we've had a bot controlled by uh, GPT-4, I believe it was, that could code on the fly MML in the world. And so Rob was there with a bunch of people and he was like, it's my birthday. And the bot just created a birthday cake and threw it in the world completely by itself because the tooling and tool chain that we've created allows for that. So there's some subtleties in this. There are some very challenging problems if you don't know ahead of time what the asset geometry and textures are that would appear in the world. You need to create mechanisms, novel mechanisms, research grade mechanisms to be able to compress and handle and even um, LOD random arbitrary assets that are uploaded to a world. This is the area where we're very, very focused on how do we make, uh, how do we go from generative AI to practical generative AI that's actually used and useful and unleashes the creativity of people in a specific context, uh, in the context of building uh, kind of game experiences. Uh, the other really weird thing is we never ever called ourselves an AI company, but every single product I've mentioned to you just now from Morpheus to beyond, every single one of them incorporates machine learning somewhere in the stack um, from bandwidth compression to another area. So I do think this is, we're going from, we're going from a world where there are, AI companies and non-AI companies to every company is an AI company, you know, like, and it's really a question of how you use it and how you, how you develop it. Um, we've also open sourced a lot of things in the past. So um, I wouldn't rule out us open sourcing some of the stuff that we're doing, um, which I just think could be quite beneficial to people uh, who, who want to build practical and useful uh, pieces in the space. And I think we'll have an announcement uh, later this year, um, if we're lucky, on, um, on, on a next product after Morpheus that, uh, that is um, specifically designed to bring generative AI into, into the metaverse. Amazing. Amazing. I'm so excited about all the things that you're working on. We've talked a lot about 
you know, virtual worlds, metaverse tools, AI, you know, kind of bringing it um, back to earth uh, for a bit. Um, what is, um, well, how do you, you know, and, and you're being, you're a very passionate entrepreneur, you've worked on a lot of things, you know, can you talk to us um, for a moment about, you know, just in your daily life, you know, how do you keep going as an entrepreneur? We have a lot of um, listeners who, you know, are, our, our builders and, you know, what, what kind of keeps you uh, centered so, and, and focused? So it took me a long time to realize that, that a lot of the narrative around entrepreneurship. So I have friends now who are entrepreneurs. I'm, I'm helping. I, I'm not going to use the word mentorship because what the hell do I know? Even 10 years in, all I know is I don't know nothing, but like at least um, let's call them professional colleagues, right? CEOs of other companies who share ideas and I try to help people. Sometimes people come to me for like investment or the opportunity to um, help them understand how to do that type of thing. And it's something that I'm doing more and more of. And the more I've done it and thought about it and, 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 and talked with my own co-founders, I realized that um, a lot of what we're taught about entrepreneurship or the messages that the media gives us about how this really goes down are incredibly toxic. You know, one of the most toxic ideas is that it is going to happen quickly, be easy or, or be straightforward, right? And although everyone knows it isn't going to be, the stories the media tells are always rapid rises and rapid falls. But actually, if you look outside of two to three outlier companies, I mean, we've mentioned companies like Epic Games and Roblox on this call. Epic Games has been at it for like longer than I've been alive, I think. I don't even know how long, quite a while, right? Roblox took 10, 12, 13 years to get to a place where it could do that. Um, you know, there is, entrepreneurship is entirely about resilience, in my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. I used to think it was about intelligence or luck or decision-making power. It isn't. It's how much humiliating, horrifying nonsense can you <laughs> cope with on a daily basis? And, and the only possible way to eat the literal plates of crap you are going to have to eat to get from A to B is to have people around you that you love to work with, that you, that you work for, that you work for. The way I got through it is... I realized a long time ago, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for them and they're doing it for me. And that means we can get through anything. We can build and, and, and challenge ourselves to go after anything. And 10 years in, honestly, I could do this another 20 years because I have people around me who I truly love to work with. Um, and also, I think it's important to not be so hard on yourself. Um, there is there's always, if you're doing something sufficiently ambitious, you're going to feel like you have egg on your face at some point. I mean, our, our stumbles are so public. You can look back and look at the historical uh, negative press and then now positive press on improbable. And I assure you every one of those bad articles felt like getting punched in the stomach at some point, right? You know, it, it did for everybody. And, and every one of the good ones can kind, of, can kind of put you another way. But I think you quickly realize other people's opinion of what you're doing isn't the same as delivering value for customers, isn't the same as creating something good. And, and, and lastly, the, the only other final thing I'd say is macro matters. Macro matters so much. As entrepreneurs, we get focused on what we're making, what we're doing, our customers, the problem we're solving. But these cycles of how investors think, of how press think, they affect us a lot. Like in all the time, if you're, if you're like me and you're um, in your 30s, not going into exactly how old, but let's assume you're there, for the entire duration of your adult life, interest rates have been either going down or in general going down other than certain spikes, right? And now for the very first time, they're going up. And that is completely going to change. We're going up significantly and how, and in a very different economic context. That's going to completely change what it means to be an entrepreneur. So, so understanding that macro, having companions you really want to do this with, and being ready to just be punched in the face over and over and over again is, is kind of the recipe that I would I would put forward. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. No, it's definitely a journey. And, you know, I, I really appreciate you being on today. And it's been amazing to hear 
about your journey and all the things that you've built. Um, and I'm looking forward to more conversations and, and continuing to hear more about your progress. Um, where can um, people find you on the net? Um, to Twitter is, uh, is, is where I hang out the most, but also the Discord for M Squared. You can see me there too if you want to have a more, more private conversation. But both of those things we're very active on. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, it's been a pleasure to have you on today. Thanks so much, Herman, for being here on the Bing Building a Better World podcast and looking forward to all the success that comes from the projects you're working on to, to build a better world. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Building a Better World. For more, search Building a Better World in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. On behalf of the team here at Superworld, thanks for listening.